God so wanted closeness with us that he was willing to limit his divinity by taking on humanity. In other words, he became one of us so that he could be with us. This is what's happening when we read about you know, the Christmas story and Jesus coming in the flesh. This is what we see as we read the Gospels and we learn about the life of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He's not a God who is distant or housed inside a building, you know, unknown and, and, and in, in a fixed location. He's present. He's moving and breathing and he's living amongst his people. He's quite literally God with us, coming on a mission to deal with sin and restore our broken relationship with God. And here's how it happens. Here's how it happens. And here's... Here's what goes on. God knows this, if you're taking notes, that all sin stems from a relational problem that can only be solved with a relational solution. Let me just say this, far beyond anything Jesus ever said or did, he wants you to know that he will do whatever it takes to be with you. All the stuff in here about Jesus that sometimes is complicated and you're like, I don't know. The most important thing that you can remember about scripture, about the story and the life of Jesus is that he just wants to be with you. Hey, so good to be uh, together today. We are uh, going to jump into week two of a teaching series called Make It Make Sense, where uh, we are just basically acknowledging the complexities of the Bible. Uh, anybody ever uh, had an experience where you open up uh, Scripture and uh, read for a little bit and really have no idea what you just read or uh, how that is good news, you know, anybody? And so... Um, I think that there's a lot of people that this way, I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I still have times of reading the Bible where I'm like, man, how did that make it, make the cut, you know, like, like that's crazy, that's strange, and so I, I do think that, that we all kind of have um, this, this uh, at times, this, this uh, complicated relationship with the Bible, and, and we just thought that at the beginning of the year, maybe it would be a good idea for us to just um, acknowledge that and, and try to assist uh, you know, all of us with, with some, some maybe proper perspectives on how to, uh, how to engage it so that, uh, man, we can really get out of Scripture what we're intended to. Amen? Okay, so uh, one of my favorite Scriptures in the entire Bible is uh, Hebrews 4.12. And Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In fact, if you go to my house and uh, sit in my driveway and try to get on my Wi-Fi, this uh, reference is my Wi-Fi password. Uh, you got to add an exclamation point at the end just to be clear. But uh, Hebrews 4:12, exclamation point. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I love this verse. I've loved it for a long time, and um, I love I love what it communicates about God's word that that the scriptures, the Bible is not just some ancient text, right? That, that that's similar to you know all the ancient you know, uh, volumes or books that, that maybe sit on shelves and that we can grab for information, that this is more than just a book full of information, um, but that, that, that it's living and active. And um, in fact, I think the scripture really teaches this, if you're taking notes, that, that the Bible is alive and um, it is meant to transform us, not just inform us, okay? Like that's, that's really the idea of scripture, like it's living, it's active. It, I don't know if you ever, ever find this where like you come to church on a Sunday morning and maybe you hear the word of God taught to you and you've sure heard some of those scriptures before or that story taught before, but for whatever reason it hits you differently now than it ever has because God's word is alive. 
And it's meant to transform us, not just give us information on God. It's meant to facilitate an encounter with God. Are you with me? Okay, but I think we all understand that like reading the Bible is, is one thing, okay? But understanding it is another. Would you agree with me? Okay, like how many of y'all have ever had that experience with the Bible where you kind of just like randomly open it up, close your eyes and point, and you're like hoping to find something good today? Anybody ever done, I mean, something quite like that? Okay, um, you know, you, you really need, to, need God to speak to you, and so it's just, it's just like point and hope you find something, and then you're like, man, I really don't want to gouge my eyes out or cut my hands off, so I'm, can I, let me try that again, you know? And, uh, and so I, I think a lot of us probably have stories sort of like this, hoping to get something. We really need something. Uh, We don't really understand the Bible, but we know that we need it to speak to us somehow. And I think that understanding Scripture is difficult for lots of people, and I think it's largely because, you know, the Bible is is basically this large library of, of books written and compiled over thousands of years. It's large, it's intimidating, um, ancient and cryptic, right? It, it can be confusing and at times boring, even absurd. You'll read things, you're like, I, how is that? How is that in there? And, uh, and yet somehow this same book that is all of those things, is also supposed to be sacred and powerful, and it's supposed to be beautiful and moving in our lives. And I think, you know, thanks to the Gideons, right, there is one of these in every room and hospital room, every hotel room and hospital room. There, there, it's free on the internet. Uh, we find free apps with this. Uh, it's quoted, it's argued over. And, and yet what I think is that even if you know some of these stories, which I'm sure plenty of us in here are familiar with some stories there does seem to be this collective desire at times in all of us for someone to just help make it make sense, right? Like, what does this even mean? Questions like, man, how does this all fit together? Like, I don't get it. Like, like so in this part of the Bible, God is like a, a, like, like a, a monster, and like in this part, he's like loving. Like, I don't understand how all of this works together. Does anyone really read this anyway? And it seems to me... It seems to me um, is that as a result of all of this confusion, people today have you know, more access to the Bible than ever, but couldn't be less interested, right? So it sits on a shelf, and it just collects dust. Like maybe, maybe some of you uh, know what that's like. It sits on a, on a nightstand or bedside table, and it just collects dust, or it becomes an app on your phone that has a 0% usage. Uh, so when you get your, your uh, weekly screen time update, it's at zero, right? Uh, because you just don't know how to engage with it, don't know how to understand it. Let me, just, let me just give you the heartbeat behind this, this entire series, okay? Just, just from me to you. It, it said, if there was one thing I want most for you, it's to deeply love God's word. This is your pastor, someone who, who, has, who has personally experienced like the word of God uh, change my life. If there's one thing I want for you, if there's one thing I could, I could have for you, like, and it could just happen like that, it's to deeply love God's word. And I have to be honest with myself, though, you can't love something that you don't understand, right? Unless it's a teenager. Like, you can, you can probably love a teenager uh, that you don't understand. But, like, in, in general, it's very difficult to love something that you don't understand. It, it, you can't love Scripture if you don't understand Scripture. Does that make sense? And so what I, what I know is that that is, that is my job, Okay, that is my job, to help you understand God's word. And that's what I want to try to do today and over the next uh, few weeks here as we're in this series. See, the goal of the series is to do a sweeping overview of the Bible, like four Sundays. Let's, let's, let's just cover the entire Bible, you know, in, in four, 
four weeks. Um, but really, the heart here is, is, is to really hit on the four, the, the, the four, what I believe are core foundational themes or components of Scripture that make up this, what I would call, overarching story or meta-narrative that, that is running in the background of every chapter and verse. And I think that the part of the reason for why people, you know, struggle to read the Bible is, is that so many people, when they do read it, they read it without seeing the greater theme behind every story, the greater theme behind every prophecy, the greater theme behind every poem, every letter, every biography, and how they all fit together into one big story about God's furious love for mankind. I think so many people, like, they, like we, we read something and we pull it out and we're like, what is that and how does that even make sense? And fail to understand that there is this giant meta-narrative in Scripture that's, that's operating in the background of every chapter and verse that if we can plug into that and understand what's really going on, Scripture starts to make a whole lot more sense. And so I use that word meta-narrative. This is what it means. Let me just, just make sure we're all on the same page here. A meta-narrative is basically the big story or the grand or master narrative running throughout a text that gives the story its ultimate meaning or purpose. Okay, so, so no matter where you're at in the Bible, no matter what you're reading, I, I believe, we believe, like people who have taught the Bible for a very long time, for thousands of years believe, that there is an overarching story kind of being woven through every chapter and verse. Everything that is confusing and bizarre and doesn't make sense, that there is an overarching theme, a meta-narrative to scripture. And, you know, the reason why I want to I explain this to you is because, man, I've seen so many people try to engage with the Bible, but then they get lost in the deep woods of like Leviticus or the deep woods of like, you know, Old Testament genealogies. And how do I even like, like understand this? And they get lost in like the ancient Near Eastern cultural nuances. And pretty soon they just lose interest altogether. And so I want to just say it like this today, if you're taking notes, that reading Scripture without really understanding the larger meta-narrative or story will confuse us every single time. Every single time. Like, like maybe you'll get something and, and, and maybe you won't. And you'll struggle to know how to really connect all of this stuff together. And I think the reason for this is because, you know, there's something very unique about the power of stories. Especially really good stories right? Uh, I think that we all know that everybody loves a good story. In fact, stories are, are what entertain us. They teach us things. They inspire us. They even provoke us at times. Stories are powerful. And so let me just say it this way to help us kind of understand why I'm even going in this direction. Stories are essentially containers for the truth or truths that we tell ourselves. You ever hear, hear somebody say something and you're like, yeah, that's not true. And you're like, well, keep telling yourself that. Like it's a story, there's a story that they are, they are telling themselves or believing or hearing uh, or one that they have been taught. And so containers are, or stories are, consens- are essentially these containers, these, these, these uh, things that hold, you know, different things we believe, different truths that we have believed along the way. In fact, both neurological and social sciences are now confirming what our best philosophers, storytellers, and artists have always known to be true, and that is that human beings... Uh, as human beings, our brains are hardwired for story. It's who we are. Stories are the way that we make sense of the world and understand our place in it. Stories define us and they shape the way we live. And I think it's pretty safe to say that we are essentially shaped by the stories that we tell. We are essentially shaped by the stories that we hear. But most importantly, we are shaped by the stories that we believe. 
In fact, the great philosopher Alice D.R. McIntyre says, before we can answer the question, who am I and what am I to do, we must first answer the question, what story or stories am I a part of? Because, you know, the truth is, we all live and I think in some cases die by the stories we tell ourselves and others. And then on top of that, there are so many stories in the larger culture that are pushing hard to define us and to shape the way that we live. Like, like for example, how many of y'all know that there is, there is a story in the greater culture around human sexuality? Right? How many of y'all know that there is a story in the greater culture around politics? There is a story in the greater culture about what it means to really pursue happiness. And there's so many stories that just are telling us what we have to be or what we have to do to be loved and accepted. And so all of that exists like outside these doors in the greater culture, like, like things that, that we have heard, stories that have been told, and some of us maybe have engaged with them and even believed them to some degree, and some others of us are trying our best not to and trying to protect our kids from hearing those stories or believing those stories. But that's not all, uh, e- even when it comes to stories, there's also the stories in our own family of origin that we carry with us well into adulthood. Uh, deeply embedded stories that live in our minds and tend to define us and color the way that we see God, the way we see ourselves, and the way that we see the world. And, and so, look, like, like none of this is a problem if the stories that we believe are true, okay? Because that's kind of like how we're wired. So none of this is a big deal if like the stories we believe are true, but when they're false, you know what happens? That's when we start to find ourselves stuck. That's when we start to find ourselves like held captive or you know, in bondage of some sort, unable to flourish, unable to properly live into uh, another story, like a, a, a better and truer story, a story that leads to life and healing and freedom and joy. I'm talking about the story that the Bible um, tells us about who God is and, and who we are. Because you see, again, if you're taking notes, let me just summarize it and explain it to you like this. The Bible is ultimately a story about God, but it's also our story. And I, and I just, if, if there's like one thing, if, like, if I could give you like a little pro tip right here for understanding the Bible, I think the number one way to begin to understand Scripture is to realize that this is your story too. That it's not just like all of these ancient people from thousands of years ago, and it's like you're trying to grab something from like David's life and hope it works, or you're trying to grab something from like these people who, who just seem so kind of out of touch, and, and it's hard to, to like copy and paste their experiences into your modern reality. Look, you got to understand that God has put all of us into the biblical story. We're to see ourselves, you and I, in the quirky, sort of beautiful and broken Uh, cast of characters, cast of misfits that are all throughout the biblical narrative. Like, we're to see ourselves in these people and realize, like, their story is my story. And a really important piece to understanding Scripture is to not insert yourself as the hero, but to, you know, insert yourself as, like, the one who gets it all wrong, the one who speaks when you shouldn't, the one, the Peter, right, who needs to put his foot in his mouth all the time. Like, Like, this is how we you sort of understand it. And so, and so this is God's story, but it's also our story. And beyond just kind of inserting ourselves into the story and kind of, kind of going, yeah, I can relate to these characters, like equally as important when it comes to the scriptures, what happens when we read it and engage it is that we also find our truest selves in, in, in scripture. Like what it means to be fully human and what it means to be fully alive. 
And, and so I think, if, if I could just give you like an enormous thing to, to think and ponder on, I think that, that a huge part of the day-to-day purposes of our lives are to learn two things, how to get into God's story and how to get God's story into us. Two things every day. How do I get myself into God's story, the story he's writing, the story that, that, that he wants for my life, the story he's writing in this world, the, the purposes and ideas and plans and thoughts that God has, the things on his mind. How do I get, that, get myself into that story? How do I get God's story into me? And I think to do this, there's two important questions we have to ask every time we engage any part of the Bible, and it's these two questions. You read something in Scripture, and you go, okay, what does this tell me about God? Number one, and what does this tell me about me? Okay, number one, number one way you, you begin to understand Scripture is you realize that this is your story too. And then two big questions, what does this tell me about God and what does this tell me about me? You see, Christians have long believed the Bible to be God's main way of revealing himself to the world. I think about that. I mean, I mean, throughout the ages, Christians have passed this text down They've they've preserved it, they've translated it, they've taken it from languages that you and I do not understand and they've put it into a language that we can read. They've long believed that this book right here is God's way of revealing himself to mankind. And if that's true, like if we believe that on some level, right, even if we don't engage with it as much as we should, if it's true, shouldn't we try to figure out what it says and how it works? And what if, what, if, what if it's possible that everything in the Bible is part of a bigger story, right? Even the offensive, confusing, and boring parts of Scripture. What if they're all kind of, kind of a part of a bigger story? What if you could summarize all of Scripture in a way that would not only help you understand God's story, but your story as well? I want to explain what I'm talking about this way. Um, again, if you're taking notes, look at this with me. This is what I believe. I believe that from cover to cover, the story of Scripture can be best understood in four simple phrases that are repeated over and over throughout its pages. These four phrases right here, I love you, I am with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. Four simple phrases repeated over and over and over throughout the scriptures from cover to cover. You run into something in here, I believe that just about anything you run into in scripture, you can fit into one of these containers. I love you, I'm with you, don't be afraid, you can come home. In fact, I think that all four of these ideas are found inside of an ancient verse in Isaiah 43. Look at this, look what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43.1, he says, he says, but now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, look at, look at all four of these, fear not, for, for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. That right there, like, is the summary of all of Scripture. I love you. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. You can come home. I think these four phrases represent um, really the heart of God, re- represent the, the, the meta-narrative that is happening and being woven in the background of Scripture and so these four phrases represent the focus for each week in this series. And two weeks ago, we were taught that one of the massive sort of meta-narratives of Scripture is this idea that God deeply, deeply loves you. 
And this week, I want to show you another overarching theme in Scripture, and that is that we are not alone. You and I, like, we are not alone because God says to each of us, what does he say? I am with you. I am with you. See, I think the more familiar you become with the Bible, the more you'll find that the Bible is this collection of poems, prophecies, letters, laws, histories, biographies, written by people and inspired by God that tell us one unified story and that shows us God's desire to be with us, our need for Jesus, and how to become like him. Scripture is that right there. In fact, all four of those like, like, uh, containers I, I mentioned to you just a second ago, I actually think they're, they're, there's a case to be made that you could almost eliminate number one and three and four and, and just just summarize all of scripture with this idea of God with us. That it's like the whole message being communicated, just about. Isaiah 41.10 says, so do not fear, there's one of them, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so look, woven throughout the pages of scripture from cover to cover is this idea of God with us, Okay. God with us. And in the beginning of human existence, we actually see a type of relationship that God enjoyed with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So scripture, if you, if you start in Genesis, it begins with, with God being with man and woman in the Garden of Eden. Like that this, we see that this is like the original design of God to be with them, to, to have relationship with them, right? In fact, Genesis 3 uh, eight and nine gives us this, this uh, kind of understanding. This is the, uh, the scriptures sort of immediately after the, the, the fall, immediately after Adam and Eve have sinned and, and uh, eaten the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says in verse eight, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. You can't imagine that, first of all. Knowing what you know about God, can you imagine hearing him walking in the garden that you are in, Okay. Look at this. In the cool of the day, God is walking, and he's looking for Adam and Eve. And so what we see is here, it, we can like understand, is like this isn't the first time. Like this is, this is part of like the design and the relationship God enjoyed with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden. It says, and they hid from the Lord among the, the trees of the garden, right? Because they had sinned, and they had now realization that they were unclothed, um, and shame, they, they were carrying all this shame, but it says, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? In other words, like he, he, there's a place where man always is, where Adam always is, where Eve always is. God knows where to find them, and you know, it's not like he's, he's asking a rhetorical. He knows where they are, but, but like, it's this idea that they are not where they're supposed to be. They are not where he usually finds them. And what we see here in Genesis is that God seems to, have, seems to have always desired this sort of level of proximity with mankind, to be able to, to walk with us, to talk with us, to be in relationship with us, to quite literally be with us. But sadly, as you know, and as the story has been told many, many, many times, sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and now God's desired relationship with his creation, with humanity, is broken and it's unable to stay the same revealing, you know what that does? It tells us it reveals the damaging nature and the damaging impact 
that sin has on all of us, especially on a, on a spiritual level. And so the rest of the story goes, right? Adam and Eve are removed from the garden. They're not allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden. They're removed. They're now forced to work the fields, to endure painful childbirth, and to, maybe worst of all, experience life now separated from God in a way that they had never known prior to this act of sin. It's not that they were like permanently forever separated from God because they still had communication with God and connection on some level, but it was never the same. It was altered drastically because of sin. Now, I want to just kind of stop right, right there and, and, sort of, and sort of address maybe the elephant in the room. I think that we can look at this and think immediately that God was being a little harsh. Don't you think? Like, like all of this over eating an apple or whatever fruit it was, right? Like, like it can seem like a little bit of an overreaction. Like you're going to remove them over eating a piece of fruit. But I think what we, what we have to understand when we're, when we're reading through Scripture is that God is, in fact, holy, first and foremost. God is holy. He's never going to allow himself to associate with sin, and he's never going to allow himself to permit sin in any way. He's holy God. And so because Adam and Eve have now sinned, right, they've, done, they've disobeyed God, you know, you know, you know what, what that, that actually has done to them? They are now contaminated by that sin. And the relationship that they had with God is now damaged. And, so, and the important thing to understand about this, because you're only three chapters into the Bible at this point, like Adam and Eve now possess zero ability to fix what they have broken, Right? Like, like they, 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 they sin, they, they kind of follow what they, what they desire, and all of a sudden, quickly, they realize that was a massive mistake. I should have never done that. But they have no ability to repair or fix what they have broken. Only God has the ability to fix this. And so because of his great love for humanity, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, look at this thought. After the fall, the rest of the Bible, so after the fall, after Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible is about God's attempts to restore what was lost in the garden. That's, the, that's scripture right there. That, that's the, the story of scripture. All, the rest of it from that moment on is, is, God, is a story of God's attempts to restore what was lost in the garden. And so the, the rest of the, uh, of the Bible becomes this story, right, of God trying to restore what was broken, this story of him doing whatever he can do to still be with us. Even though sin now makes that virtually impossible for a holy God to come close and have that kind of relationship with sinful people. So the story of scripture shifts to this sort of new reality after Genesis 3 that in order for God to be with mankind, here's what has to happen. He has to now figure out a way to deal with sin. In order for God to still be with us like he was in the garden, he's got to now figure out a way to deal with sin. And, and so um, because of this barrier that sin creates between humans and God, I want you to kind of, kind of understand the Old Testament like this, that the bulk of the Old Testament tells a story of humanity's long-distance relationship with God. That's how you understand the Old Testament, Okay. It tells the story of mankind's long-distance relationship with God. In other words, like, he's still there. Like, he hasn't completely abandoned them. He's still with his people. There's still a relationship on some level, I guess, but he's distant. And we know that at Mount Sinai, he forms a covenant with them where he will be their God. They will be his people. And he takes on the role at that point of providing for them, guiding them. But he has only ever actually known by a select handful of prophets, priests, and kings 
who were handpicked by God to communicate to the people of God on his behalf. And so God would only really speak to just a handful of people. So if you were a part of like the population of the, of, of the children of Israel, chances are, unless you were like Moses or Joshua or you know, a high priest of some sort, like you had no ability to communicate with God. You just trusted that that was all being taken care of for you by Moses or whoever the leader was. In the Old Testament, God is present, but he's largely unknown, okay? In fact, what we find is that, is that he's with them, he's present, he hasn't forgotten them when he raises up Moses to deliver them from slavery. He's obviously still moving on their behalf. He's still active in their lives. He's with them as they're wandering in the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. Like he still has plans for them. He hasn't completely abandoned them, but the relationship has changed because sin came in to the earth. And as they wander in the wilderness, um, Exodus tells us that God goes before them as their guide. So I want you to catch this, right? So they're in slavery in Egypt. Exodus is all about what? Their exodus out of slavery uh, to the promised land. And, and so they are, when they're wandering in the wilderness, they are in the middle, they're in the place between where they once were and where God is taking them, right? You ever been in a place like that? You ever had your own wilderness? Okay, so in the, you ever felt like God wasn't with you in your wilderness? Like, like they feel this at times. And so um, what we find here in Exodus is that God is, in fact, with them, even though they're wandering in the wilderness trying to get from uh, Egypt to the promised land that God has pledged to give them. It says this in Exodus 13, verse 21. It says, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire. Imagine that, right? So he's out there in front. He's kind of like the lead dog. He's out there in front of them. Pillar of fire, this pillar of cloud, to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And so, as the, these, think about this as these Israelites have come out of Egypt, they, they have no military uh, whatsoever, they're incredibly vulnerable to be, being picked off. God is still with them. Like Exodus communicates that, that even though like, like, like this isn't perfect, even though there still has been sin and, 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 and man has messed up this relationship that he designed to have with them, like he's still doing whatever he can to be with them. He hasn't left. But the truth is, is that he's largely unknown because in this case, only Moses is talking to God, okay? And then God takes it up a notch in Exodus 25 where he says, he says to Moses, he says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Listen to this. You hear that? You see that? It's the meta narrative of Scripture, one of them right there. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. I will be with them, okay? Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God, God instructs Moses to, to, to build or construct like this sort of makeshift, uh, not really makeshift, but I would say temporary building, right, um, that housed the presence of God. It could be built, it could be torn down, it could be moved from place to place as the Israelites traveled on their journey to the promised land. The tabernacle became the place where the sacrificial system was enacted, the place where 
the people would bring their spotless, perfect, perfect animal to sacrifice to God as a way of atoning for their sin. I know I'm getting a little heavy, but like, I'm going I'm to try to make it, make it make sense. Like, think about that. The sacrificial system is enacted at the tabernacle where God has decided that, that he wants this building constructed that will house his presence among them. He then says, hey, let's do, let's do some sacrifices. Let's do, here's what we can do to try to atone for sin. Which sounds kind of gross, you know, all these animal sacrifices. Obviously, there's a lot of you know, PETA violations going on here, but uh, it sounds kind of, kind of, kind of crazy. Um, but I want you to kind of, you ever been confused about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? Anybody? You ever just been like, what in the world? Like, that is just gross. Like, what do you mean? They're supposed to bring like their perfect animal and get this thing slaughtered. Like, you know, when you actually think about it, these, these priests are, are, are basically glorified butchers. You know, like, how is this like a good thing? And I want you to try to see the beauty of what's actually happening, okay? Through this sacrificial system, what's going on is God is instituting a system that would deal with sin so that he could be with his people. He is doing something. He's enacting like a a system that will handle sin so that proximity uh, with him and his people can happen, close proximity. But as, as, as we know, as we read the rest of Scripture, what we know is that the sacrificial system was limited in what it could do. The presence of God being with them at a distance was not a perfect solution. There's still this barrier because of what? Because of man's propensity to continue to sin and sin and sin and sin again and again and again. And, and I think that even though you might get confused on some of this and hung up on some of the complexities of, of kind of the ancient, you know, is, you know, uh, stories of Israel and their people and their relationship with God and that covenant and, and how strange some of the detail is, I want you to catch this, okay? The only thing that can take the place of sin is the presence of God. And the first step in restoring what was broken in the garden is God reinstating his presence. Do you understand that? Do you see that? Do you see that? Like, it's not as, it's weird, but it's not as weird, when you understand what God is really doing here in the Old Testament is he is, he is, he is reinstituting his presence among his people. He is quite literally, again, saying, I want to be with you. A little bit more on the tabernacle, right, is Exodus 40. It says, then Moses set up in the courtyard around the tabernacle an altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is another name for the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In verse 35, even Moses right, could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of of all the house of Israel during all of their travels. That's a really important little tagline there. So God is out in front leading the people through the wilderness. Either he's a pillar of fire by night or a pillar of cloud during the day so they know where to go. He's with them. He's leading them. And he's out in front. Look at this. In the sight of all the people of Israel, the house of Israel, during their travels. So every single person is able to look out and and, and know that God is with us. Even though, even though God is largely unknown, he's with us. But there is still this barrier between him and the people. It's not like what it was in the garden. 
Additionally, let me explain this about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God is present, but his location is, is fixed, essentially. Like eventually, as the Israelites would possess the promised land, the tabernacle would be replaced by this sort of huge, ornate temple, which we talk about a lot when we read the scriptures. It was this building uh, that was put together, built and constructed dur- during King Solomon's reign, and it was located in Jerusalem, and it would become the sort of the central hub in their culture. And inside the temple, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, and in that room was where the presence of God was located. And that room could only be accessed once a year by the high priest who had to go through an entire process of of cleansing himself and making sure he was good. And he would enter into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied to his ankle with bells. Because if he walked in there and he wasn't, he hadn't done what had to be done to make sure he was able to stand rightly before God, he would die. And people couldn't just go in there and retrieve him. They would, they would hear the bells stop ringing and they would pull him out. Like this is kind of what's going on, right? So God is with them. He's there. He's in this building. But like, yeah, like, like he's in a fixed location. He's largely unknown. Like how do you interact with a God like that? So the Old Testament, in a large part, is, is the story of humanity's sort of long-distance relationship with God, where he's present, but it's, it's not personal in any sort of way. Any, any of you ever experienced a long-distance a long relationship? Anybody ever, ever experienced that? Lindsay and I did this for over a year when we were, we were dating uh, back in the day, about tw- 20 years ago. Uh, now this, We're about to hit 20 years of uh, when we first got together, and uh, you know, when we started, when we started doing this long-distance relationship. This was back when like cell phones weren't particularly reliable, and so we'd be talking, and and uh, you know we'd ha- we'd we'd uh, you know have times where we'd have to like hang up and call back because like the call would cut out. You remember that? Like couldn't you know all this? I mean, it feels like we'd we'd hang on the phone for like an hour or two, but like a bunch of that was like, okay, what were you saying? Like you cut out there, you know? Uh, we call each other back. Um, can you hear me now? That kind of stuff. But we kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And here's why. Here's why. Because something is better than nothing when you don't have the real thing. And so in the Old Testament, like, like even though this isn't like exactly like, the, like God's best solution, this isn't exactly what God uh, you know, has in mind for them long term, something's better than nothing. When you can't have what was, what was available in the garden between man and God, like something's better than nothing. And God is still with them, he's still present, but it's just not the same. And yet we know that, that distance has this ability of, of making you feel distant. You know, COVID taught us that, that we did everything from a distance. We chatted, we texted, tweeted, Zoomed, we hated it, hated it, hated it. And thankfully, what we know now is that this long-distance relationship between God and man was not his final solution. When you remember that after the fall, the story of Scripture is largely about God trying to get everything back that was stolen in the garden because of sin, it helps you as you move now into the New Testament. And so as we move through the Bible, we go from this sort of long-distance relationship in the Old Testament to this drastic shift that now happens in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. So, so catch this. At the very beginning of the New Testament, this is what we see. We see God take on flesh with us again like he was before. Do you see that? It's God with us. It's God saying, I am with you. 
In fact, we just came through Christmas, right? The birth narrative of Jesus where, you know, uh, there's four gospels that tell the story of Jesus. Two of them uh, tell the birth narrative story, you know, in great detail, Matthew and Luke's gospels. And, and the birth narrative is, is basically a fulfillment of ancient, ancient prophecy of God promising to once again be with us like he was before in the garden, And in the very first chapter of the New Testament, in in Matthew's gospel, we see God's plan unfold as he continues to try to restore what was lost in the garden. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. God in the flesh, living and dwelling amongst us. Everybody at first glance, thinks that there's only two Gospels that talk about the birth of Jesus. I actually love the Gospel of John, chapter 1, because uh, he takes a whole different spin on it. He's like, let, let Matthew and Luke give you all the, the detail. Let me just basically tell you in, 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 in you know, so many words what actually happened when Jesus came. John 1.14, he says the word, so that's Jesus, okay? That's not the word this, Jesus is the word. That's what, that's what we know, okay? So the word became flesh and made his, okay, this is not a person, his dwelling. The word is Jesus, became flesh, made his dwelling where? Among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So look at this. This is what I would say. When I read this stuff and I understand what's going on now in the New Testament, God so wanted closeness with us that he was willing to limit his divinity by taking on humanity. In other words, he became one of us so that he could be with us. This is what's happening when we read about the Christmas story and Jesus coming in the flesh. This is what we see as we read the Gospels and we learn about the life of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He's not a God who is distant or housed inside a building you know, unknown and, and, and in, in a fixed location. He's present. He's moving and breathing, and he's living amongst his people. He's quite literally God with us, coming on a mission to deal with sin and restore our broken relationship with God. And here's how it happens. Here's how it happens, and here's, here's what goes on. God knows this, if you're taking notes, that all sin stems from a relational problem and can only be solved with a relational solution. He knows that. And so he comes to us. He comes to us with the plan to restore what had been lost in the garden and unavailable in the rest of the Old Testament after that, this relationship. He then seeks out relationships. And do you notice that he seeks out relationships with like the least likely people you would expect him to seek out relationships with? You notice how the people Jesus chose to share his life with weren't all that impressive? You notice how Jesus starts to just, just be with, like, tax collectors and sinners, you know, like, prostitutes and people who, like, are, are not ones that we'd want to sit down and have lunch with, very, like, like, uh, like, I don't know, like, that's a little too, that's a little too messy for me. Like, Jesus begins to be with people like this and have relationship with them. He came to be with the people that nobody wanted to be with in a way that nobody wanted to be with them. Not just somebody who like saw them and said, hey, good to see you, how you doing? But somebody who was their friend, 
He is a friend of sinners. Let me just say this. Far beyond anything Jesus ever said or did, he wants you to know that he will do whatever it takes to be with you. Far beyond anything he ever said or did. All the stuff in here about Jesus that sometimes is complicated and you're like, I don't know. The most important thing that you can remember about scripture, about the story and the life of Jesus is that he just wants to be with you. Even if it costs him his life. And I believe that this is love, right? Not just that Jesus forgives your sins, but that he chooses to be with you and never leave you. Like this is love. To never leave you or forsake you. To never say, man, you've done way too much sinning. Like I can't be, I can't be like associated with you anymore. Like this isn't God. That's not who he is. He has done everything he can to remove the barriers and the obstacles so that he can be with us and we can be with him. In fact, when you look at Matthew 28, the, the uh, classic scriptures of the Great Commission, Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven at the end of his life here on earth. And he says to his disciples and his followers as they gather around him, it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Look at this. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Last words of Jesus on earth in physical, human, bodily form. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is an interesting verse to read because Jesus is promising to always be with his disciples um, at the very moment he's leaving them. You know, like, this is the moment where he is leaving earth, he's ascending into heaven, uh, he's at the top of the Mount of Olives getting ready to kind of do a Houdini, and uh, he tells them, I'm never going to leave you, I'm with you always. And, you know, how can he make a statement like that? Because it feels a little untrue at first. Like, you tell me you're going to always be with me, but you're actually leaving And yet, we find that this was the plan all along for Jesus to leave so that the Spirit could come. God with us in the flesh as Jesus, it just wasn't good enough. Jesus being limited to human flesh where he could only be in one place. You know, Jesus never really, never traveled out of Israel except for Egypt when he was a little kid. He never, never really traveled out of, that we know of, out of Israel. He stayed in one little location his entire life. And so what we see now after Jesus ascends into heaven, starting in the book of Acts, is this right here, that God moves from being with us through Jesus to dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. Okay? He moves from being with us through Jesus to dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. That's why John 16, Jesus could say, but, but now I'm going away to the one who has sent me, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate or the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, won't come. But if I do, do go away, then I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, like, it's, it's best for me to leave and to not be here in bodily form, for me to go and to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate. And what, because, because now that he is resurrected, he's no longer confined to a physical body and no longer has human limitations. 
And so he ascends, and, and, and in many ways, as he, as he gets into heaven, it's as if he's sort of like taking back all of the deity that he has set aside while he was here on earth. He's no longer confined to that physical body. He's now able to be with all of us everywhere, in every place, every time we need him. Because God, listen to this, he no longer dwells in a temple made by man, but he now dwells inside of us, transforming us into basically human temples and making us carriers of his presence. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Think about how scandalous of a statement that is when you understand that the temple has been the hub of their culture as Israelites, as Jewish people for thousands of years. The scandal of that statement is that God does not exist in that building in Jerusalem. He exists inside of you. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Wait, where is the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you've received from God, you're not your own. That's why he says you're not your own. You're bought at a price. He says, therefore, honor God with your body. Like, right? It's not just you. It's not just you and your flesh. It's like you and God. Honor God with your body. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes and he says, Tim, you can go to come. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, often offering spiritual sacrifices, right? Not animal sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter says, look, like, like now you're like Jesus and you are being built into this spiritual house that contains the presence of God, the power of God. And this is what happens. So as you start in Genesis and you realize the kind of relationship God wanted to have with man that was broken because of sin. And as you see woven throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this long distance relationship with God where he's really basically doing um, what he can with what he, what he has to work with. Sin, sin is complicated and it complicated the relationship between God and his people. And yet in spite of that, in order to still maintain his holiness, he comes as close as he can. He gets right to the line. He's like, I wish I could cross the line, but I can't. And so because of this, I'm still gonna be with you, but there's gonna be some distance and you're gonna feel that. It's not gonna be like it was in the garden. But then, that, that was just, that, like what we see is that, that that was just a temporary solution because Jesus comes as the ultimate solution. In Matthew 1, he comes to put on flesh, to walk amongst us. God in the flesh for 30 years walks around Nazareth, Galilee, the area. He's in the little village, like building tables and chairs and whatever's going on as a carpenter, God in the flesh, quite literally living amongst his people. And then he comes and begins his ministry right after the spirit of God descends upon him at his baptism. He is empowered now to go out and do the things he came here to do to accomplish his mission. And he goes out and every person who came to him who was sick and every person who came to him who was, who was, who was possessed Every person who came to him who was struggling with, with difficulty, he healed them every single time. He wasn't, he wasn't too holy and too righteous and that he had to have the separation from them and couldn't come near. You know that he touched lepers and made them whole. You know? Do you know this? You know that he spoke over dead people and saw them come back to life 
quite literally, we read in the New Testament that God is not distant and uninvolved, that God is not out there just sort of as a, as, as, as a leader or a guide that we can see at a distance, but that he has come close. He has put on flesh. He has chosen to be like you and like me to understand what we go through and come to us in our time of need. But the best news you'll hear all, all day is that that wasn't enough. That Jesus leaves this earth so that the Spirit of God can come, so that, God, so that Jesus isn't just something that, someone that you can, you can find or access over there in the Middle East somewhere. And go take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and find Jesus. It's not that. It, it's, it's look within yourself and find not you and your true self, but find your true God inside of you. He's dwelling within you. The full sweep of Scripture from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, is a story about God's furious love for mankind. That he will stop at nothing to bridge the gap that sin has created so that he can quite literally be with you and live and dwell within you. That's good stuff. Struggle with the Bible? That's all right. Struggle with the Bible? That's okay. Like, I love you, and I'm with you. Let's start there. I love you, and I'm with you. Would you stand with me for a second? I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward. If you're here today and you could just use some prayer, some encouragement, uh, we'll have some people over here on this side and on, on this side as well. Um, you're going through some things right now and you just need that extra reminder that God is with you. Uh, feels like maybe he's not or you're carrying some burdens today. Uh, we have some, some people trained and ready, prepared to just pray over you and bring encouragement. Um, if there's any issues going on in your body, need healing of any kind, any healing in your mind, emotions, any burden you're carrying in your life right now and uh, you just need some extra prayer, uh, these guys are, are here, they're ready. They'll be, they'll be here to pray for you, to pray over you. And uh, even after the team has done, uh, gotten done pl uh, playing, they'll, they'll still be around and, and uh, offer prayer for, for a while. There's just uh, two thoughts and I'm out. And you know that's not true, right? But, but two, I mean, two thoughts. See, I think that God is most powerfully present in the moments it appears he's absent. And I think that, like, sometimes we just, we're going through stuff and we're like, man, God, where are you? But he, he's, like, powerfully present in those moments, even when it feels like he's not. You ever been in such a dark place in your life where you just wanted somebody to be with you? You know, like, you just don't want to be alone? I want you to listen to me. He is there. You ever felt lonely? God is with you. But beyond that, like, that's, that's important. You're going through struggles. Where's God? I don't know. I need him to, like, show himself to me and remind me that he's close. That's, that's usually how we understand this, like, God with us. Thank you. But, but also, I want you to see this, that God loves you so much that he chose to be with you, not only when life is bad and there is no hope, but even in the mundane, the unfun, and the unrecorded parts of your life. Like, he just wants to be with you. He likes you. He just likes you. And so here's what I want you to do right now. We're going to close. We're going to close. I want you to close your eyes right now. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. 
And I want you just to start to listen. Just listen for a moment. And I want you to listen to God say to you, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. You are not alone. I am with you. I am with you. What if you believed this? What if you believed that God was actually with you? How would your life be different if you lived with an acute awareness that Jesus is literally with you? How would that shift your life and change your outlook? How would it affect the way that you live day in and day out? Father, we love you today. We thank you, God, that there is none like you. And I'm just reminded as I, as I teach through this today, I'm just reminded of how faithful you are, that you are so incredibly faithful that even when we mess up and are unfaithful, Scripture tells us that you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. It's just who you are. You can't be faithful one day and unfaithful the next. You are constant. You are steady. You don't leave us. You don't forsake us. You don't abandon us in our most difficult moments. You are the most steady thing we have going for us in our life. Your faithfulness, your goodness, your promise to be with us every step of the way. So I just declare over every person today, God, every person who feels alone, who feels like, man, they're kind of going through the motions that, that uh, they're not really sure where you are in their story, I just declare that God will be found in your story. You will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. I pray for just a wholeheartedness in us, not a partial heart, not a divided heart, but a wholehearted pursuit of the living God in us and that we will find God. I thank you that you are easy to find, God, that you're not difficult to find. You're not, you don't mask yourself. You don't just try to play games with us, but that you want us to know that you are with us. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.